This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. We are back with another week of Incubator and Neonatology Review. This week, we are looking at phototherapy for hyperbilirubinemia. Um, Fascinating, fascinating topic. How are you, Daphna? I'm good. And you know what? I mean, the preparation for board review right now is, is... arduous it's it's a it's it's a mountain but it's we're we're having fun like we're learning a lot uh, digging deeper and so i hope other people are learning too yeah and this topic specifically is one of my favorites it's just yeah. such a great great i mean the topic we're discussing today which is the history of phototherapy is just fascinating just <laughs> fascinating so um without further ado let's get going so Number one, humans have thought for a very long time that sunlight is healthy for you and that there's a ton of benefits to the sun, the sun's rays, and sunlight in general. Whether it was in ancient Egypt, whether it was the Romans, the Greeks, they all believed that if you took a little sun bath, you would feel better. (laughs) The DNA mutations was really not on their minds at the time. (laughs) But... um, but we want to talk specifically about phototherapy for neonatal jaundice. So, um, and, and most of the community, there's some reports that midwives and nurses in India, I'm not sure when, were exposing babies to sunlight to reduce jaundice. But there's really not a lot of sources to, to document that. So most of the, 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 consensus, the consensus is that it really started in the 1950s in the United Kingdom. So the story that this story people might know, but it's, I have details that are fun. So the story (laughs) takes place in Rochford General Hospital in Essex, which is east of London in the UK. And in that nursery there worked a nurse named Sister Jean Ward. And she personally valued the benefits of fresh air and sunlight. And she could not understand why we kept these babies in these stuffy incubators all day. And so in the summer, she would get there a bit early and she would take some of these babies out of their cribs and take them outside to bring them for to, for a quick uh, time in the sun and bring them quickly back into the unit before the team could notice or before the, the, the team rounded. Like how I like to sneak out our, our BPD babies. I like to break them out of the unit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. You have data to support your practice though. Uh, True, and you're not stealing babies. If anybody, no, not that, stealing that, babies. That, that one is not stealing any babies. <laughs> um, no, in fact, it takes a team to, to take these babies outside. So, in 1956, one day, right during there's rounds. Rounds are happening in the unit. Something peculiar happens, right? So, the story that I'm telling you is told by Dr. R. H. Dobbs, who's the on, the attending on service that day in 1956, and he writes, and I quote. One particularly fine summer's day in 1956, during a ward round, Sister Ward diffidently 
showed us a premature baby, mm. carefully undressed and with a fully exposed abdomen. The infant was pale yellow, except for a strongly demarcated triangle of skin, very much yellower than the rest of the body. I asked her, sister, what did you paint it with? Iodine or flavine and why? She thought it must have been the sun. What do you mean, sister? Sun? Suntan takes days to develop after the erythema has faded. Sister Ward looked increasingly uncomfortable and explained that she thought it was a jaundiced baby, much darker where a corner of the sheet had covered the area. Mm. It's the rest of the body that seems to have faded. We left it at that, and as the infant did well and went home, fresh air treatment for prematurity <laughs> continued in the unit. So <laughs> she realized that this baby that had this change in color was most likely that the area that was yellower was because it had not been exposed to sunlight. But then something very cool happened. So a few weeks later, um, they have another baby with jaundice, which is not uncommon at the time. And the baby's blood sample is being sent to the lab mm -hmm. for bilirubin. And if you've had struggles with your local laboratory, you're going to enjoy this, this one. <laughs> the, so they send this sample to the lab and the results are taking much longer than usual. So after some time... <laughs> so doctor, they sat and they sat. And yeah, they sat. Yeah. It's 1956, people. I mean, they're struggling with the same <laughs> stuff. And to me, it's always very funny when you send a bunch of labs and there's the baby that probably requires an exchange and he's the last belly level to come back, right? Always. <laughs> Never fails. Oh, I, I need, need to redraw that one. Of all, of all the babies in the unit, that's the one that needs a redraw. Uh, Daphna has a lot of amped up frustration. She just came <laughs> off service. <laughs> so... Um, so a few weeks later, right, they have this kid with jaundice and they send the sample to the lab. It's taking longer than usual. So after some time, Dr. Dobbs takes the, takes the phone and calls the lab um, and says, okay, what's going on? And they say, hey, we have a lab value of 13.5 for the belly. But based on the baby's condition, based on the history, Dr. Dobbs realized that this is clearly not correct, right? They're like, this, this is supposed to be much higher, right? These, these were, this was a baby that had bellies in the 20s. So he relayed his concerns to the technician who said, hey, I'm sorry about the delay. And I quote, he said, it should have been done before lunch, but I found the tube lying on the window seal and I did it myself. But I'm telling you, like the results are correct. So as you or me or Daphna would do, they sent another specimen sure. and the belly level came back 24. Mm. So then the, the, the technicians in the lab were baffled. So they, they, they rechecked the morning value. So they took what was left of the old specimen and that specimen was still sitting by the window. Mm. And now this, the sample that had yielded a 13.5 earlier yielded nine milligram per deciliter, so even, even lower. And in the paper, um, Dr. R.H. Dobbs poetically says, at last light dawned, right? <laughs> uh, so the other observation that they noticed was that the sample by the window seal had actually changed from, from red to yellow mm. to even a green tainted color. And that was the green of Billy Verdon, which we'll talk about in the next few days. But these two instances really prompted Dr. Dobbs and his colleague, Dr. Mercer, who really took on this mantle to look more carefully at the effects of sunlight on Billy Rubin. And they published this landmark paper in The Lancet in 1958 uh, called Influence of Light on the Hyperbilirubinemia of Infants. Beautiful paper. The graphs are pretty impressive. They mm -hmm. have this graph, which we'll post, I guess, where 
they have like the bill ruby level with light turned on and off and there's some the the level just going up down up down it's very cool um so the paper then in 1958 humbly concludes by saying no prospect can be entertained that this light treatment will prove a substitute for exchange transfusion in the erythroblast infant with active hemolysis, but the method may be turned to clinical advantage in controlling the level of serum bilirubin in cases of jaundice of prematurity. So, I mean, they're describing phototherapy for jaundice and they're not, right? It's very European, yeah. right? No gloating whatsoever. <laughs> so then if you do some research, this paper comes out and you would think like the, the evidence would just pour out, right? Um, mm -hmm. but nothing happens. This paper almost gets shelved and really there's nothing. And the best example of that is that in 1960, Gerald Lucy, who's considered to be like one of the pi American pioneers of, of treatment and management of neonatal jaundice, published a review on neonat neonatal jaundice and briefly mentioned the photosensitivity of bilirubin. But the funny thing is, he mostly mentions, mentions this as something that the laboratory should be careful of avoiding uh -huh. because it might just like make your numbers wrong, right? right? And so he says, further information is needed. I mean, I'm quoting. He says, quote, further information is needed before one can evaluate the usefulness of exposure to fluorescent light as a therapeutic procedure. One also wonders how many laboratories have taken adequate mm -hmm. precaution against mm -hmm. light in doing determination of serum bilirubin. So it was really not on their radar at the time. And so you have to really move along and you have to wait about 10 years before uh, from the original paper from, from Kremer and his colleague uh, for the first trial of phototherapy for hyperbilirubinemia to be published. And the author of that trial was none other than Gerald Lucy, the one we mm -hmm. just talked about, who was from Burlington in Vermont. So what happened? And that's another super cool story in, in, the, in, in neonatology. So, um, well, so it turns out that the physicians from the UK and from the US were really in the dark when it came to phototherapy, pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but the rest of the world was actually using phototherapy and especially in Latin America and mm -hmm. other countries. So wh why was phototherapy um, practiced in certain countries and the US especially was lagging behind? So then the story gets quite interesting. So it, it starts in 1965, right? So or almost like 10 years after the publication of the first paper. And you have this, <clears throat> this pediatrician named Dr. Mario Ferrero, who's from Santiago in Chile. And he wants to do a neonatal fellowship. So he applies for a fellowship in Burlington, Vermont, where Gerald Lucy is practicing. And Gerald Lucy mentions how he was puzzled that somebody from Chile would want to come to Vermont. <laughs> like probably doesn't want to come for the weather. But anyway, so they, they bring... They bring Dr. Ferrero over to Vermont. And the first one of the first things that Dr. Ferrero notices is that they're not using phototherapy. Yeah. And so he, uh, Gerald Lucy actually uh, quotes this exchange with him. And, and so Dr. Ferrero says, why aren't you using phototherapy? And Gerald Lucy says, is anybody using it? 
<laughs> and, <laughs> and Ferrero says, oh, yeah, we, we do in Santiago and it seems to work. <laughs> and Gerald Lucy admits that he was a bit arrogant. So he says, how can you tell it works? I have seen no publications to support its use. <laughs> and so Mario Ferrero then goes to the medical library and pulls out like over 20 papers on the subject. But they all had one thing in common. None of them were written in English, mm -hmm. Portuguese, Spanish, French, Italian, but not English. So then he translates those papers for Gerald Lucy. And they reach out to then some of these authors from specifically Brazil and Uruguay and ask, and they ask them like, oh, what, how do you do phototherapy? What kind of device are you using? And with that, they basically copied the way they were doing the phototherapy and they started this randomized control trial. So then this study gets published in 1968 in pediatrics and it's called Prevention of Hyperbilirubinemia of Prematurity by Phototherapy. Lucy uh, is kind of ironic in the way he accounts the result. He said, our randomized control trial turned out to be a success, proving that phototherapy did work. And I, I like that he's humble and he says, this was no surprise to many physicians in South America, mm -hmm. France, and Italy who had been using such therapies since the early 60s. Um, and, and I think this is, um, this is very interesting for me as, as a foreign uh, physician mm -hmm. who we tend to think today that the language barrier is no longer there. But what if, you know, I yeah. mean, this is a very clear example of of a difference in language preventing the implementation of a proven therapy for, sure. for 10 years. And even after that paper gets published, there's some resistance to phototherapy, especially within the US. Uh, most notably, Gerald, Dr. Gerard, Gerard Odell from Johns Hopkins, who raised many theoretical concerns about safety and effectiveness of, it, of phototherapy. My understanding is that he even banned the use of phototherapy at Johns Hopkins for a while. Um, but that was obviously uh, short-lived. The proof was there. And with the practice confirming the findings of the study, really phototherapy took off in the 70s and onward. The only other thing that I wanted to mention maybe was that in 1983, there's an interesting paper published in the Journal of, Pedi of Pediatrics by Dr. Enevier and his colleagues from Cleveland, Ohio, that really looked at from the light spectrum, what's the wavelength really that's uh, responsible for the photosensitive, uh, for, for the phototherapeutic effect uh, on neonatal jaundice? And that's really that paper that shows that the range is like 390 to 470 nanometers. Um, and we'll post that, and it's quite quite nice to see these graphs where the bell curve really jumps up at around 450 nanometers. Um, yeah, and I think I think this is a good place to to really transition mm -hmm. into the mechanism of action of phototherapy uh, on bilirubin and jaundice, which I think you'll talk to us about mm -hmm. in the next few days. You know it. Looking forward to it. It's a really fun story. Now, you're quite the history buff, but I I very much enjoy this, this yeah, story. Yeah, this is, this, is, this is cool it's, to know. It's that. really about the serendipity in medicine and uh, collaboration which is something we're we still think, trying to do, right? Yeah, we think things are so well organized and we don't yeah. realize that it took like some foreign grad to apply for a fellowship in Vermont to then tell the person there, 
you're not doing something that everybody else is doing. Let me translate those papers. That's why trainees should speak up, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's why um, that's why I think the U.S. is a great place because it welcomes so many mm-hmm. foreign physicians, mm-hmm. and I think you benefit from the experiences of these foreign physicians who sometimes sure. bring stuff from home. So anyway, thank you, Love Daphne. It. Thank you, buddy. Take care. See you tomorrow. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.